Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hi. Over the last, I don't know, a few months, we really noticed the work of a particular writer. Her name is Amanda Mull. She writes a, a column called, or a regular feature called The Material World uh, in the Atlantic. Uh, Amanda is interested in a lot of the same stuff that we're interested in, uh, particularly kind of the semiotics uh, of the whole consumer industry, uh, the kind of sense that there's meaning uh, either embedded or grafted on to products or even types of transactions or brands. So we enjoyed her work so much, we decided we would devote an entire show to her. But that didn't really seem like enough either. So we contacted uh, the great American composer Matt Farley. Uh, and I'm pleased and honored to k- kick off today's show with Matt Farley's haunting and beautiful love theme from the Amanda Mull episode. She's worked for The Atlantic. Since 2018, she's been published in many other great respectable magazines. She's got a way with words, typing away on her keyboard. All about the world that's material. Amanda Moore. Amanda, Amanda, Amanda Moore. Amanda Moore. Amanda, Amanda, Amanda Moore. Amanda Moore. Amanda, Amanda, Amanda Amanda Mole. You know, I'm just a little bit verklempt after listening to that. It just gets me every time. Uh, joining us now is, in fact, Amanda Mole, staff writer. Unless she just heard that song and hung up. Uh, Amanda Mole is a staff writer uh, for The Atlantic. Uh, she does write the column Material World about American consumerism. We are devoting the entire show to her today. Amanda Mole, welcome to what is essentially your show. Thank you so much for having me and for that beautiful introduction. Isn't it wonderful? Yes. So we're, we're going to begin kind of with the tail end of consumerism. It's what you've written about most recently, uh, a term called reverse logistics. This is about the business, as you say, of moving unwanted products back up the supply chains from whence they came. And so, Amanda, this is very much a product of obviously online retail where you often buy things that you can't really see uh, and you can't try on. Uh, and you haven't really even developed the kind of attachment to that might happen if you were bringing something home from the store in your arms. Um, so say a little bit more about this and, and you know, just what you discovered as you actually met some of the people who have to do things like smell uh, uh, shirts and sweatpants and stuff <laughs> to make sure they don't smell wrong, I guess. I don't know. Yes, I... Um I've written about returns a bunch of times, and it's one of my favorite topics to go back to because the the objects in our lives have such um, long um, existences, and uh, usually we only interact with them for a short period of that time. And when you order something online and then return it, that's an even shorter period than usual. Um, so I think that the assumption a lot of people make is that when you return something, it goes back to the store where you bought it from. Um, That is almost never the case. Uh, There's a couple retailers that do that with their online returns. Um, But most um, retailers of any significant size, chain retailers, things like that, um, pool their returns at these third-party vendors called um, uh, returns liquidators who – 
do all of the sort of fiddly, fine, detailed work of figuring out what has been sent back, why it was sent back, if it can be resold, um, and how to extract the any remaining value out of it. Um, I went to one of these facilities in Brynigsville, Pennsylvania, which is in the Lehigh Valley. It's right outside of Allentown. Um, And it's part of this sort of um, logistics campus that contains um, a lot of the sort of distribution mechanics of consumerism. Um, You know, there's Amazon warehouses, there's uh, UPS and FedEx, there's all of this stuff that... Um, helps all of the the material things that we that we buy and return and use in our day to day life sort of move around the country, um, and especially move around the um, the Northeast for this particular um, logistics campus. And one of those buildings is owned by a, or is rented by a company named Inmar Intelligence, which is the largest um, returns liquidator in the country. They have seventeen facilities um, in North America. Um, this is one of their largest ones, and it uh, collects returns um, from. Tons and tons of retailers that you have heard of, that you have shopped from, um, of all different types. There are chain drugstores, there are major clothing brands, major discount retailers, things like that, that all send their um, returns back to this place. And, you know, it it involves a a lot of data analysis. There's a lot of... um, technology that is that is used in this process. But fundamentally, everything that you return um, has to pass in front of human eyes through human hands. Somebody has to look at it and evaluate it and decide if you actually uh, are telling the truth when you say that you never wore it and it was never used and you should get a full refund. Um, so I, I watched this process happen for lots of different things, including clothing. And part of the clothing evaluation process is somebody, you know, gives that, that pair of pants that you returned or that sweater just a little sniff to see if it smells like a person has been um, sweating on it um, I, or not. I also love the fact that one indication that somebody might be lying uh, about never having worn uh, a garment uh, is that sometimes underpants are found inside the pair of jeans that get sent back or there's a vape pen or perhaps the most disturbing thing, a wedding ring <laughs> yes. in Carmen's pockets. Yes. Uh, Inmar told me that the most um, common uh, sort of uh, stowaway they see in returned clothing is underwear. So somebody puts on a pair of pants, um, you know, wears them around or just tries them on or whatever, uh, decides they aren't going to work and sort of strips them off. And, you know, with those with those pants, sometimes go that person's underwear and they get shoved into, um, you know, the the – cardboard box or poly mailer from whence they came and they go to Brindingsville sometimes <laughs> um, where somebody has to remove them. Uh, they told me one story about about a, a, a time that they found a guy's wedding ring and he had actually contacted the retailer and the retailer had contacted the facility to ask them to look for it. Um, and it took them an entire shift, um, or at least that's what Imar told me. And uh, But they did eventually found it, find it and get it back to him. Um, but yeah, all kinds of stuff goes right. goes in the there, pants. There's a Harold Pinter play uh, in that wedding ring thing, I think. But um, <laughs> but um, yeah, so this is also um, kind of a psychic shift. Um, prior to online retail, the percentage of thing goods, consumer goods that were returned was, as you write, in the single digits. Now it's up to twenty to thirty percent of purchases result in returns. And I feel like we've, you know, prior to the digital revolution, there was this kind of idea that we were moving in the opposite direction. That we were going to go and buy lentils out of a kind of a, a big barrel on its side and scoop it into something, and then put it in our cloth bag and <laughs> take it home. You know, 
And instead, we've become these monsters who, you know, buy a television set and watch the World Series on it and then return it or something. Uh, I, I, we just become these horrible people. I mean, I, I read this article and I think I don't really like us that much. Well, we've certainly, as a population, developed some uh, some, some somewhat unsavory habits. Uh, I don't think that's entirely the result the uh, the fault of individuals, though. I um, one thing that's sort of interesting about online shopping is is trying to put it in the larger context of the consumer system over time. And what you see with online shopping is yes, it's a it's a significant change in the sort of like mode by which the, all of this stuff happens. But the logic of it. Uh, is sort of similar to that of Walmart, um, to that of the department stores that came before Walmart. Um, this entire line of, uh, of of retail logic that suggests that we need to have um, the things we buy sort of uh, contextualized and uh, abstracted and, and made uh, – palatable and made interesting in ways that sort of cut them off from our understanding of their source, our understanding of the labor that went into them, where they came from, um, you know, what kind of energy they required and what happens to them when we're done with them. Um, so this this process that sort of led us to what is now somewhat of a, of a logical extreme, I think, um, dates back about 150 years. And over time, the, you know, new waves of, of business owners, of entrepreneurs, of corporations find ways to make it more efficient, more um, enticing to, to individuals, um, more uh, efficient at getting more and more things into people's homes. Um, so, I think online shopping is fundamentally sort of a, a continuation of, of that process going back more than a century. Um, and really what it is is just sort of stripping out all of the all of the friction that stands between a person and a purchase. Um, if you don't have to leave your house to buy something, that's a significant point of friction removed. Um, and the the sort of like uh, governing logic of, of retail has been like looking to um, eliminate as many points of friction as possible. So if if place is eliminated as a point of friction, um, then retailers have you sort of over a barrel to a certain extent. Yeah, I think the other thing is, and this also goes back decades and decades, I mean, a lot of retailers are selling a relationship. Um, and one reason that they would make returns frictionless and kind of easy to do is not because they care about that particular, particular pink button down uh, Oxford shirt that they sold you that you're sending back, but because they want you to be in a relationship with them. Nordstrom, well before the online revolution, was famous for this, that they would take anything back, including stuff that they knew that they didn't sell according to their own corporate mythology, as I remember at the time, yes. they claimed to have set, uh, once accepted a set of tires. Um, <laughs> so, uh, that, so that was like the big idea, have a relationship with Nordstrom, because we're not going to screw with you in that way. Although, in another piece that you wrote about, it turns out, you know, at a certain point, it becomes maybe not all that cost effective just to be taking back stuff all the time and not making people pay for it. And all this frictionless shopping results in people buying stuff that they really don't want and they send back. So uh, you write that the age of the free return is coming to a close. Yes. Um, the the history of retail is the history of, of companies sort of trying to shark uh, market share from each other. And one of the ways that that's done is through this sort of uh, relationship management that you describe. Um, and returns are a big part of that because you, t you take out a lot of the sort of inherent risk of spending money, um, at least psychologically, when you tell somebody that like, oh, if you don't like it, just bring it back. We'll give you a full refund. And that is an easier guarantee to make in person um, for a whole host of reasons. If somebody brings something back to um, a store, 
you can put it right back out on the sales floor immediately. Your processing time is almost nothing. I worked at Best Buy in the uh, mid-2000s when I was in college, and we, you know, took stuff back and then had it sold the next day to a new a new person um, because we could slap an open box price tag on it and somebody looking for a deal would come and take it. So the the cost of processing returns was was lowered and so were, were um, the amount of returns that were happening. When people can see things in person, they uh, make better decisions. They return fewer things. They know ahead of time if they're going to um, like how something fits. So you have lower costs on both of those ends, which enable you to to say, yeah, we'll just take anything back. That logic sort of got exported to online shopping because a lot of people were, were really um, reticent to shop online when the technology first uh, became uh, commonly available. So what online retailers had to do was figure out how to create that same sense of like psychological safety in, in taking the risk of buying from a new retailer. Um, and the way that they did that online was to make the process as um, feel as... as familiar as it had, um, you know, when shopping in stores. And part of that was, hey, you can send anything back. But when you shop online and and when a retailer is taking back online returns, the costs to do that are like far, far higher um, because a lot more labor is involved, a lot more transportation is involved. To to the point of the first article we were talking about, you've got to figure out whether these are sort of open box products that you can resell or whether they've been trashed or what should happen to them. They're like a whole bunch of different things. Uh, And as you point out, you know, the first thing that everybody thought was, well, I'm not going to buy shoes that way because I have to try on shoes. And now everybody buys shoes that way, or certainly a lot of people do. I want to talk about specifically this uh, really fascinating piece that you did uh, called The Death of the smart shopper. This is the idea that we could successfully inform ourselves about what we're buying, particularly online, you know, because there's user reviews and there's, you know, wire cutter and strategist and stuff like that. That And, and you're, what you're saying, I think, is the stuff that we're buying now is still more of a black box. There's a huge information gap between the seller and the buyer. Yes, Absolutely. That information gap has always existed. Um, the people who are in possession of the product and who have evaluated it um, previously and who know exactly where it came from are always going to have more information than, than a person walking into a store with no subject matter um, expertise and, and probably little context and little ability to like gain context. Um, but the Internet sort of magnifies that uh, because – not only do you not have the subject matter expertise to look at a bunch of different um, like window air conditioners and decide which one is most would be most cost effective for you and fit the best in your home, but like you don't even have the actual window air conditioner air conditioners themselves to look at in person. Um, you're looking at a photo that has probably been manipulated in some way, photoshopped, you know, AI embellished, something like that, um, to make it look um, as enticing as possible. So you're deciding about, you know, among a bunch of sort of representations of possible products and those representations that may be last year's model and they've just, you know, stuck a new set of inventory under that listing, things like that happen all the time. So you you have these um, additional layers of abstraction that make it more and more difficult to understand what it is that you're buying when you um, tap your credit card or let your browser um, fill it in for you or however it is that you pay. So... You know, we have all these services online that are trying to mediate some of that um, sense of sense of uh, uncertainty that people have, such as Wirecutter, The Strategist, all of these review websites. But those are all 
sort of like increasingly unreliable as well because there's, A, just too much product out there to evaluate, and B, there's too many copycat sites that sort of are all trying to do this same thing. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of them, the people who are writing these reviews haven't actually used the products (laughs) at all. They have read some Amazon reviews and put some affiliate links in a post, and Google surfaces it to the top because people are looking for um, shopping content. And it's there's so many layers to sort through to figure out if any particular thing is true about any particular thing that you're buying. And that's only uh, become more difficult with online shopping. All right. We're going to grab a quick break here. Amanda Mull isn't going anywhere. Uh, We're going to come right back. Uh, We've got a lot of other ground, a lot more ground to cover after this. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevating health. Amanda Moore. Amanda, Amanda, Amanda Moore. Amanda Moore. Amanda, Amanda, Amanda Moore. Amanda Moore. Amanda Mole. All right. If you're just tuning in, a reasonable reasonable surmise would be that our guest today is Amanda Mole, and that would be correct. Staff writer at The Atlantic writes the column Material World about American consumerism. Let me just quickly tell you a story about what's something that's going on right now because it's a real, it's kind of an Amanda Mole story. So in late November, Amanda, I ordered a, um, a, it's actually a birthday present for a family member whose birthday is very close to Christmas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I ordered it from Amazon. But um, two things. First of all, it was a third-party Amazon seller. As you write, there are now two million third-party sellers who are absorbed into the Amazon mothership uh, with you know, some regard maybe to who they are, but maybe not that much. And the other thing was it was heavily featured in Wirecutter right around the sort of Black Friday time. Um, and you could probably guess what's happened, which is that it hasn't arrived yet. Amazon has no idea where it is. Uh, they just said it should have arrived December 5th. If it hasn't arrived by December 8th, You've got a problem. Uh, (laughs) um, So a lot of things are coming together, right? Me using a gift guide to maybe order something that's going to be over over ordered uh, because everybody looks at Wirecutter and they think, well, I'll get that too. Uh, And then this whole third party problem with Amazon. Right. This is a really um, precarious time of year for all all of the logistic systems that feed. the online shopping behemoth that we all interact with probably every day. Um, 
you've got a lot of seasonal workers, both in warehouses and on delivery vehicles. Um, you've got uh, a, a surge in the number of packages that each person who handles packages has to deal with every day. Um, I recently had sort of the opposite happen is I got delivered something that I had ordered from Amazon, but Amazon believes it was not delivered. Amazon <laughs> believes that it is still out there because I think the driver just missed scanning it when they were dumping out everything that was going to my rather large residential building. Um, but there's no way for me to tell Amazon that I already have it. So I keep getting updates about it's on its way. It's coming. <laughs> um, but it's it's already here. I'm using it. Um, so there is just there. There's a lot of, that can go wrong in each of these little um, interactions that we have with with this much, much larger system. And as you cre- increase the volume of that system, which we do by leaps and bounds um, during the holidays, uh, the capacity for errors increases along with it and the ability to like resolve those errors just is not really there because letting any of us talk to a person in all of this would cost a whole lot of money. So we're sort of left dealing with um, prompts on apps and chatbots and things like that. Yeah. So, I mean, what I'll probably do about this, if it does, hasn't shown up by the weekend, is go to a brick and mortar store. And this is what you've been also writing about lately. The notion that the brick and mortar store was completely wiped out by online shopping turns out to be wrong. It's just that it had to kind of rethink itself a, a little bit. Uh, you went to a Bass Pro Shop, which apparently is, is a life-changing experience. I can't really imagine why I would go to a Bass Pro Shop other than the way that you described it. But if you do it right, people will, in fact, come to your store. Yes. Um, the Bass Pro Shop that I went to specifically was the flagship in Memphis, which is inside a, an old disused um, pyramid, um, which is a fascinating uh, piece of sort of American ingenuity on so many levels. Um, it used to be a basketball arena. Now it is a Bass Pro Shop and and a hotel, which I believe has like a bowling alley. There are so many things <laughs> happening in this place. There's a, there's a Wahlburgers burger restaurant with an emphasis on wild game. Um, it is It is a fascinating experience. And, you know, they host events. There, they do all of this stuff, and going into this store um, was fun. There were there was all kinds of people there. There was you know families, there was individuals, there was tourists, there was locals, and um, all kinds of people just sort of wandering around, enjoying the sights. the The store itself contains you know displays with live animals that contains. Um, uh, alligators, fish, like all kinds of stuff that are sort of woven into the sales floor. Um, it feels like some sort of Disney park almost, like it has production value that, that I was really impressed with. And, um, you know, people were going out of their way uh, to, to go to the store to check it out. It's not in an area with significant foot traffic. You have to make the special trip. Yeah. And so, um, I mean, I think you, what we've also seen, look at Warby Parker. The entire vision of Warby Parker initially is you get to buy your glasses online and through the mail. Uh, and guess what happened? They just started opening brick and mortar stores because people want to come in. But people may also want to come in. Like, I'm not going to do that because I want to buy my glasses from Carl because Carl knows what glasses. He runs a place called Central Optica, but he knows what glasses look. He'll just go over and pick out my glasses and put them on me and I'll leave the store. Um, and and there's that too. And for me, and this is something I don't think you've specifically written about, but I now am an adherent uh, and a Sunday attender of the First Church of Costco. Uh, and I go to Costco, and I feel as though I'm in good hands and that I'm going to have a different experience than buying a lot of stuff online. It's a little hard to quantify, but that kind of loyalty to a brick-and-mortar store is not that unusual anymore, I think. 
Right. And what we still find in consumer sentiment surveys is that a majority of shoppers still prefer to go to brick-and-mortar stores for um, most kinds of shopping. Uh, Online is convenient in some sense, and it's the best option that some people have for some things, depending on where they live. But usually people are, like, really happy to have, you know, businesses close to them, convenient to to where they live or where they work, that where they can take care of a lot of this. Because I I think that a lot of the, the infrastructure of online shopping is built to talk people into bad decisions. Among those bad decisions is buying things like shoes online where you can't try them on. People knew from the beginning that this would be a bad idea, which is why so much expense was was built into online shopping to make it frictionless in other ways so that people would do things that sort of like on its on, on their face are, are uh, not smart. And everybody knows they're not smart. So people, we still find, like I said, in consumer sentiment surveys, people like going out to get things. Uh, it is more convenient. You can get get something in a half an hour that would take Amazon two days to get to you. Um, and, you know, there are certain things that are that are easier done online and that I'm perfectly fine to leave there. Um, but shopping in person creates um, so much less waste. Uh, and, it, and it's just, you know, people... What we have found in all areas of life after the pandemic is that people like leaving their houses. They like going out and have ex- having experiences, whether that's going out to dinner or going to a concert or like going to a really great store and browsing around and enjoying the environment that's been built um, to sort of uh, entertain them in that way because shopping is used as entertainment in a lot of situations for a lot of people. So I think that um, people are in some in some ways sort of reevaluating their relationship to this to this sort of retail apparatus and that's where you do see places like Warby Parker going okay well we were we were uh, built online but glasses are something that people want to try on so why don't we try some retail stores now yeah and i think amazon of course amazon's first thing i believe was it was an online bookseller mm-hmm. um and i think bookstores are a place that people are coming back to i, I want to go to a bookstore where the staff writes in, in you know on 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 little index cards and ballpoint pen what they liked about this particular book and tapes it up under the book or pins it up there that idea of dealing with a human being uh and not dealing with you know some anonymous person from cedar rapids who didn't like whatever it is that i'm <laughs> thinking about buying <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I, to me, that there's a sort of it's brick and mortar, but it's also flesh and blood, I guess. Right. Absolutely. People like interacting with other people on the whole. Um, and especially in situations where there is like advantage to be gleaned from those interactions, like going to a bookstore is a perfect example of that. Um, and bookstores, both independent bookstores and chain booksellers like Barnes and Noble are doing quite well right now after, you know, some very hard years with competition from Amazon because readers, uh, I think by and large, have realized that that those businesses are um, are of significant value to them and to their communities. So they go out and spend more money in order to patronize those shops. Um, And part of that is that interacting with people who really love books when you're trying to find a new book is uh, of significant value to you as an individual. Um, You can get recommendations. You can um, browse, like physically browse and see, you know, happen upon things that you would have never found surfaced by the the Amazon algorithm in a thousand years. Um, so th- there's just like a lot of um, interpersonal value built into um, in-person activities like this that I think some people miss uh, from from years spent shopping online. All right. So we're going to have Amanda Mull for the rest of the show. We are going to take a very short break here. When I say short, it'll be three minutes. Uh, we're in the middle of pledge right now. 
No, it'll be four and a half technically. Yeah, but three minutes of pledge. Um, we're in the middle of a pledge drive right now. And if you like conversations like this one, if you like uh, hearing guests like Amanda Mole who have so much to say, uh, and you like public broadcasting, maybe when these people come on and ask you to donate right now, pledge right now during our show, when we'll get a certain amount of credit for it, maybe you'll do that. Maybe you will. And uh, we are the people uh, Colin is talking about. Uh, I'm Meg Dalton, and I'm here with my colleague and investigative reporter, Bria Lloyd. She's one of my favorite people at the station. Hey, Bria. Hey, Meg. That's so kind of you. (laughs) I wouldn't say it if it weren't true. Um, We are jumping on the airwaves right now to ask for your support during our December fun drive. Uh, It is Wednesday, so we are at that sweet, sweet midway point. And if you've been thinking about donating, uh, why not do it today? I think it's your moment to shine. Uh, And you can do that by visiting ctpublic.org. You can also call 1-800-584-2788. And this hour, we have a $1,000 goal. Uh, And if we reach that goal with your help, uh, People's Bank uh, will unlock a dollar-for-dollar match of all contributions. That's People's Bank, real, simple banking. Uh, And Bria, you know what else is real and simple? What else? Uh, Amanda Mull's breakdown of all things consumerism this hour. Uh, I think uh, Colin and Amanda have been doing an awesome job just sort of parsing through all the things. Um, I especially really loved when they were getting into some of those unwanted purchases a bit earlier. Yeah. You know, like all those things that you buy and then you send back because you don't like them. Uh, but if you want to avoid doing that this holiday season, why not gift a donation to Connecticut Public instead? Uh, you can do it in the name of your friend, your partner, your parent, whoever. Uh, I guarantee that it will be the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, You don't have to worry about a questionable carbon footprint or having to make a return online or, God forbid, in a store. Uh, Plus, making a contribution to Connecticut Public is easier than adding yet another item to your online shopping cart. Uh, So go to ctpublic.org or call 1-800-584-2788. Agreed. And speaking of donations, we want to give a quick shout out to Daria from Hamden, who donated earlier today. She donated in honor of her late husband, Lloyd Mueller. And we'd like to give her a shout out. And we thank you so much for being a part of this drive as well. And we also want to give a shout out to our friend Connie from Hamden, uh, who made a contribution this hour. Uh, people like Connie, people like you, uh, you make all of this possible. Um, and if you make a donation today, again, it can make a nice, really holiday gift for people. Uh, you'll not only delight your loved one with the gift of public radio, but you'll also directly support hours of radio like this one with the Colin McEnroe Show team. Uh, your support makes all of this possible. And we can't really do this work without you. So go to ctpublic.org. You can also go to one 800 584 2788. Every dollar makes a difference. And we thank you so very, very, very much. Uh, And yeah, I hope you enjoy the rest of this hour. It's going to be a good one. Time to say thank you. Thank you to Kat Pastor, our technical producer. Uh, Thanks to our producer, Jonathan McPants, who got in touch with the composer, Matt Farley, to write the uh, love theme from the Amanda Mull episode. Uh, And thanks to senior producer, Lily Tyson, who is the producer of this particular episode with Amanda Mull from The Atlantic. So, Amanda, we've been talking an awful lot about systems uh, and you know ways in which people get things um, and stores and things like that. We ought to talk about a product or two. Uh, and so 
<laughs> As we were getting ready for this show, Lily Tyson, who's a very, very healthy person, kept telling me how much she liked hookahs. Uh, I really like hookahs. <laughs> and I kept thinking, you're just so not a person I would imagine going to some hookah bar or something like that. It turned out she was talking about a type of shoe, uh, which I think she's wearing today. And probably you are as well. So, And you wrote a great piece about this, uh, about how cool people saved uh, the rest of America's feet. Explain your premise. <laughs> I, You've found me rare day that I'm not wearing my hokas because it's a uh, Christmas party day here at the Atlantic. So I had to put on a slightly uh, fancier pair of shoes, but um, I, I do really love them. And it's interesting how shoe trends sort of wax and wane over time. They're a great way to, to understand the sort of cycles that trends for all kinds of things go through, especially aesthetic things. Um, and for a while, like super sleek sneakers were in. People wore um, flip-flops. People wore, uh, you know, uh, Chuck Taylors, which are which are very minimal. Um, and, you know, uh, Adidas Stan Smiths, uh, which are also sort of the... the uh, platonic ideal of a of a white sneaker uh, where there's just not much going on and then like over the years this was in the in the early 2010s the end of the end of the aughts and then as time went on the sneakers started getting bigger um, that was because uh, largely of this trend called normcore, which emerged in the middle of the, the 2010s as sort of a reaction against the super sleek, super um, designed uh, looks that had been popular for the previous like 10 to 15 years, like skinny jeans, uh, tight blazers, um, minimal white sneakers, things like that. So you start seeing the volume of all kinds of things, and sneakers included getting sort of larger. You get sort of a Jerry Seinfeld 90s bagginess again, and you get that in sneakers too, um, where they start to be just sort of puffy, sort of chunky, um, big thick soles, uh, you know, uh, they have some volume to them. And these become cool first among millennials who were in their, you know, early 30s, late 20s at that time. And that look has really held on and become in some ways like a little bit more pronounced even. Um, you look at some of the Fila sneakers that have been really super popular, the the return of the New Balance dad shoes um, in, in many, many different forms. And um, the... On the high end, you get the you get the Balenciaga Triple S sneakers, which were like impossible to buy for a little while, and they're really huge. They're really sort of um, farcical in their in their volume and their scale. Um, and out of that has come um, this sort of uh, sneaker brand called Hoka, um, which was founded in. France, I believe, and uh, is now owned by an American company that also owns UGG and um, and Teva, Teva, I believe. And um, they have become a billion-dollar sneaker brand. They haven't been around for very long. It is very hard to compete with the Nikes and Adidases of the world who have so much market share. Um, but their sort of volume has uh, has allowed them to put a lot of support and a lot of <laughs> And a lot of sort of orthopedically sound structure into their shoes. And is this cohort of millennials who really got into normcore in their late 20s and early 30s have aged? A lot of them um, have just gotten used to the amount of um, to the amount of support and the amount of of comfort that shoes of this scale um, can provide because they can put a lot of a lot of good padding and good structure within all of that. And 
that has really uh, ingratiated a lot of them to hokas, um, which are incredibly comfortable. If you have plantar fasciitis, if you have lower back pain, hip pain, things like that, um, a lot of people, uh, you know, entering their 40s, as millennials now are, has found them, have found them really, really super comfortable. And, um, and because that comfort and that sort of like interesting, cool aesthetic have sort of co-occurred in the same shoe. Um, you know, things being comfortable and things being fashionable really don't uh, happen at simultaneously that often. And I think it's it's um, meant like a really, really huge buy-in to this particular brand of sneakers because you can sort of um, hit two birds with one stone. Um, and But and not, it's, but not it's two all birds. But not two albums with one step. Um, no, no. There are different conversations. Those are too sleek for this trend. That's right. Too sleek for this trend. Different conversations. But yeah, I should say that um, I also have had plantar fasciitis, which is a disease which causes you to subscribe to the totalitarian anti-democratic uh, principles of, of Mr. Peanut. But and also that I am I have pioneered a, uh, a style called hobo core, uh, where I just sort of look like I'm waiting for some other hobo to die so I can take his stuff. Um, but I wear something called Kuru, K-U-R-U. I have them on mm-hmm. right now. They're for like people who think hokas look too sleek and stylish, I think. Uh, but they're really good. <laughs> they're really good for your feet. So yes. um, let's go to sweaters. Um, you know, we talk a lot about NAFTA and the Warsaw Pact. We hardly ever talk about the multi-fiber arrangement. Uh, but you have informed me <laughs> that the multi-fiber arrangement, which expired in 2005, is the reason that sweaters aren't as good as they used to be. Or a reason. A reason sweaters aren't as good as they used to be. Yes, it's one of the big reasons. And, and it goes for all types of uh, products made out of textiles, all kinds of clothing, lots of home decor. Um what the multi-fiber arrangement set out, it was signed in the 70s, and it sort of was uh, designed to be phased out. It's, it phased itself out over the years until 2005 when it was no longer in effect at all. Um, and what it did was place caps on the amount of uh, textile products that could be imported to um, rich Western nations from poorer um, nations, mostly in um, Asia and Latin America. So that meant that not a whole lot of clothing from the the areas of the world that now produce almost all of our clothing could be brought into the U.S. or into Western European countries. Um, that was a little bit protectionist over the garment industries in those areas, um, but it was more signed as like sort of a... Um, a placation method to um, the garment industries at that time because it was designed, like I said, to be phased out. Um, so when that when that expired in 2005 is when you really start to see the um, the flooding into the American market, all these fast, fast fashion brands. Um, you get uh, lots and lots of H&M stores, H&M's um, web presence. You get more Zara stores. Um, Forever 21 really takes off because suddenly there's no um, limitations on how much um, inexpensive textile products you can bring in from uh, anywhere in the world. Um, the the tax burdens on those, the tariff burdens have been greatly, greatly reduced. Um, so what happens is that brands just start looking around the world for manufacturing capacity that allows them to make um, cheaper clothes. Because suddenly there's this competition from international companies that are already bringing in cheaper clothing. So the American brands, the mall brands, the the ones you think of from the 80s and 90s, um, suddenly are required to like compete against these companies that are that are priced so much lower than they are. So they go out and look for similar manufacturing capacity and they start to lower their prices. Um, when you lower prices, uh, 
something has to give. Um, so you're looking for cheaper labor, yes. But also when you look for cheaper labor, it tends to be um, labor that is that uh, the manufacturers have not invested in. So they're, it's less skilled um, and um, you're going to then have them also working with uh, fabrics that are that are just not as good, that are a lot cheaper to produce and can be produced in basically unlimited quantities. What that means is a lot of plastic, um, polyester, acrylic, things like that are all plastic. Um, they're all derived from fossil fuels. And then you also get viscose, which is rayon um, and, and a couple other brand names uh, like that. And that product is made from bamboo, so it's technically natural in that way, but it requires a lot of really caustic chemicals that make it really, really difficult to manufacture it in the U.S. because of environmental regulations. I mean, it's Over- the perfect American product, right? We pollute somebody else's environment so we can have a cheaper product that we can also feel a little bit good about because there's bamboo in it somewhere. I mean. Yes. Yes. The the marketing of bamboo, one of my coworkers has actually written about this. The marketing of bamboo textiles is sort of fascinating because they are, they're really, really detrimental to the environment. They are basically illegal to manufacture in the U.S., but people feel good about them because it says bamboo. And it is somewhere back there along the line, bamboo. But bamboo, we've all felt it. Some of us have had it in our backyards and tried to get rid of it. It is, it is not a plant, um, plant. It is not something that, that yields. Um, and it can be made very, very soft, but it takes some really, um, really noxious chemicals to do that. Um, so you do that all overseas. And the the cheaper fabrics and the cheaper labor um, and the worse conditions and the um, less skill and the higher scale just mean that quality over time from all kinds of different angles just decreases. Um, and you get stuff that's not well made, that um, doesn't survive cleaning, that doesn't survive wear. Um, and everything gets a little bit worse. I, I'm wearing a sweater from a catalog called Carbon to Cobalt, which I'm very hopeful about. And it is all cotton. Anyway, so we'll, we'll see what happens to it. It's brand new. Um, so uh, I took it from another hobo um, <laughs> So uh, while he was sleeping. Uh, so I, we, I wanna, we're just almost out of time. But then this is not something that you've written about, but I really want to hear your thoughts about it. So I just noticed this morning that Wirecutter, there's a, a movie called uh, Leave the World Behind. It had stars mm-hmm. uh, Julia Roberts and Hersha Ali and uh, Ethan Hawke. And um, there's a, like a really high-end fallout shelter or survival shelter, bunker kind of towards the end of the movie. And they've already sort of t- <laughs> they have a piece about how to buy all this stuff, uh, how to have your own $2.6 million uh, uh, fallout shelter. But I also watched May, December recently, and I, I, I know that if I were hipper about makeup, I would be going, oh, Julianne Moore and uh, Natalie Portman are putting on Instagram uh, favored brands like Ilia and stuff. There's, there's a lot of influencing of us just from the culture that we consume that may either drive our decisions or validate decisions we've already made. I'd love to hear you say that, uh, talk about that for a few minutes. Yeah, this is, um, you know, a really classic practice in mass media. Um, people are always looking for indications that they're that they're buying or doing or consuming or or acting in the correct ways. Um, and I think that people. You know, they look to they look to the um, other humans around them, but they also look to messages in media. And it is, you know, as long as we've had mass media in the U.S., which is about the same amount of time that we've had the consumer system in the U.S., um, those two things have gone sort of hand in hand. Um, one of the one of the best examples of this is um, is the example of De Beers and uh, the Diamond Cartel and its relationship to Hollywood. And this goes back to mid-century, um, where you had. Uh, uh, you know, a desire by uh, 
diamond uh, purveyors to uh, create an image of diamonds as particularly rare and particularly sought after and important in certain social ways, both romantically and to um, women's conception of success and and buying them for women important to men's conception of success. So you saw... um, the De Beers cartel through their advertising agency put this sort of like full court press on Hollywood. And out of that, you get a lot of different um, important types of media, but you get most famously Marilyn Monroe in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes doing the famous uh, Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend number. Um, And, you know, the De Beers cartel through its advertising agency supplied tons and tons of diamonds to um, Hollywood celebrities, to Hollywood productions. And you get moments of culture like this. Um, And this one is so famous. It has been, um, you know, parodied and um, uh, and uh, recreated in so many different forms of media since then, including um, the Material Girl Mm -hmm. Madonna video. Um, And And that was really with the intention of setting the expectation that diamonds have this particular um, social uh, value in the U.S. um, into into American women in particular. And, you know, we all know exactly what scene I'm talking about. That that movie came out decades before I was born. Well, it's kind of like, you know, you used – if I say Billy Crystal sweater Harry Met Sally, uh, I mean, you used that as an illustration in your sweater story. I mean – 30% 30% of my audience will be able to conjure up a picture of that right away, right? Right. Yeah, these these tableaus and these in these moments and these scenes that that get created in mass media and that that come that come to sort of um mean something important in culture and in two people and two people's, you know, shared understanding of the expectations um, and values of the society that they live in. Um, These all include like lots and lots of objects and um, brands have brands and, and sellers and manufacturers have known for a very long time that putting the right thing in those moments has an incredible um, impact potentially on on how people buy things, on how people think about products, on how people think about um, the value of the things that they consume. And so this is this is something that has gone on uh, for a very, very long time, since the beginning of the Hollywood system, really. Right. And we will, we've only got two minutes left here. Um, and so I, I hope I don't have to um, cut you off. But I mean, it's happening even more insidiously in places like TikTok. I'm sure you saw the story two days ago in the Wall Street Journal about tweens, you know, 11 and 12 year old girls who want $62 whipped moisturizers from drunk elephant and all these incredibly expensive skin products that they're learning about on TikTok, which is an even harder elephant to throw a rope around. Yes, you you end up in this situation where we are now from the sort of uh, diamonds are a girl girl's best friend um, example. You end up where like the product recommend- recommendation or the product representation is itself the entertainment. There is no like interesting song or interesting movie that happens around <laughs> a lot of these things now. We we view the recommendation itself as a form of entertainment and it becomes sort of like devoid of lar- larger cultural meaning, of artistic merit. There's, you know, the there's trade-offs that we all make in the consumer system. And one of the better trade-offs is that, you know, De Beers financed some fun movies that people still really enjoy watching. <laughs> um, I don't I don't think that a lot of our product recommendations and, and sponsored content these days end up end up even, um, you know, creating that sort of media that might have a larger value to society. It's just recommendations for their own sake.
Yeah, so we're going to have to stop there. Uh, I want to, first of all, thank uh, Amanda Mole very much for her time today. And we really have just scratched the surface of the um, Amanda Mole oeuvre. I found just reading a lot of the stories to get ready for this, I started thinking in a very different way about all kinds of things that I'm purchasing, uh, all kinds of things that I might consider getting, what it actually means, who's influencing me. So uh, I really do recommend going to the Atlantic site and just clicking on the Amanda Mole thing, and you'll get uh, years and years. Uh, of not, not not that many years of terrific articles. But Amanda Mould, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you so much for having me. This has been so much fun. And let's end, uh, of course, with your love theme. Here we go. For the Atlantic since 2018, she's been published in many other great respectable magazines. She's got a way with words, typing away on her keyboard. All about the world that's material. Amanda Moore Amanda 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 Moore Amanda Moore Amanda 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 Moore Amanda 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 Meg Dalton here with my colleague and pal, Bria Lloyd, and we're back to ask for your support. Uh, you can't see us, but we were vibing really hard to Amanda Mole's theme song. It's it's quite the bop, and I think it'll be stuck in my head for the I next couple hours. I love that theme song. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> so there's only a few minutes left this hour, but we really want to hit our $1,000 goal. We are about halfway there. Uh, and perhaps even living on a prayer. Uh, if you make your contribution right now, uh, I promise not to sing Bon Jovi on a loop for the next few minutes. <laughs> you can go to ctpublic.org or call 1-800-584-2788 uh, to show us some support. And if we reach that $1,000 goal, People's Bank will unlock a dollar-for-dollar dollar match of all contributions, which is pretty sweet. Uh, that's People's Bank, real simple banking. Again, visit ctpublic.org or call 1-800-584-2788. And Meg and I have been chatting. There are a lot of amazing gifts that you can get if you do donate to us. And the holiday season is upon us, so it's the perfect time. And I think one of our favorites is this mug that we have. And if you donate $10 a month, you can get this mug that has every town in Connecticut listed on the mug. Literally every single town, 169 across the state from Andover to Woodstock. Uh, it's got Bridgeport where I live. It's got New Haven where Bria lives. Uh, and it's also like, it's very snazzy. It feels really good in your hand. I, I have it in my hand right now. Um, and it says we are Connecticut in like bold type at the very top. And because it's winter, I feel like this is going to be the perfect mug uh, for sipping on any of the hot beverages that you like, whether it's yeah. hot chocolate, apple cider, some mold wine. And you can only get it from us. It yes. is exclusive to yes. us. And I would love this mug. So that is one of our gifts, if you guys are interested <laughs> in that. We also have other gifts like a CT Public beanie. I have the beanie. I love the beanie. It's very warm and, you know, it is getting cold here and we're going to have a long snowy season, I've heard. So you can get that as well for $10 a month. And you can also donate um, meals if you if you would like as well. So we have plenty of great gift options here for you. Yeah, and that mug we're talking about, the beanie that Bria's talking about, uh, unlike some of the purchase purchases you might make this holiday season and sort of what Amanda was getting at, uh, it's got real staying power. You know, it's it, they're sturdy. Uh, they're not going to, you know, 
collapse into to chaos in front of your eyes. Um, so if you want that fancy new mug, if you want that cozy beanie, you can go to ctpublic.org. You can also call 1-800-584-2788. Both of them are really great options. I don't know. Do you have a, do you have a preference, Bria? 